The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, what a passage, hey? Um, I was just telling the guys at the prayer meeting this morning, it's a bit of a stitch-up for Kylum to go on holidays just in time. Malachi's been very practical, very helpful, and suddenly it gets very, uh, very complicated. And so guest preacher week. Um, look, it's good to be here. I will have met a lot of you. If you haven't met me yet, um, my name is Matt. I get to be a pastor at the Inogra Baptist Church in Inogra, very creatively named. Um, and we've been there for, I've been pastoring there for 10 years now, would you believe? So that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, my family are going to be there this morning, so you, you won't meet them, but it's good to be here. Um, I don't know if the, I didn't check beforehand if the team got the email with my PowerPoint. You got it? Excellent. Um, a quick bit of family update for those of you who care. We've, we've just 10 weeks ago, we welcomed this into the family. So um, this, is, this is young Edith. She's the great productivity destroyer. Uh, and we couldn't be happier. So this is this is daughter number four for us. Um, so we have a Kia Carnival, and go, go, going into that, I was a bit worried. You know, I was, I was saying to people things like, you know, it's like every 16-year-old boy's dream that one day he would grow up to drive a Kia Carnival. But it, it, it turns out that it is my favourite car we've ever owned. It is incredible. Um, did you know that the Kia Carnival? This is a sermon about Kia Carnivals this morning. The Kia Carnival has a 3.6 V6. 3.6 litre V6 under the hood. It is a rocket ship disguised as a people mover. Um, so if we ever pull up next to each other at the lights, beware. Beware. We've got two spare seats to fill still. So that's the, that's the challenge. We're getting old. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So as a church, you've been in the book of Malachi. That's exciting. I like the book of Malachi. It's got a lot to say. It might be the Italian prophet Malachi, perhaps. Has anyone made that joke yet in the series? Yeah. Or Malachi, if you don't like what he has to say, you could go that way. Comes, comes to us from the exile. It's an interesting period of Israel's history. Have you ever had a friend um, making a decision and you have to watch that decision take place and you just think it's the world's worst decision and you would like to talk them out of it uh, and there's nothing that you can say to make it better? Like, for example, I have a mate with a mullet. It's, it's too late for him. It's too late for him. It's like he knows better, he knows it's wrong, but he's going to go ahead with the business at the front and the party at the back. The, uh, the exile is a bit like that in a, more, in a more serious way in that it's a, it's a period of Israel's history that makes us feel like shouting. Um, the, what's happened to the Hebrews thus far, God is being so patient and so faithful with them. And despite this long history of them provoking his anger, all the way into sending them into the exile, he's still for them. He's not giving up. He's still got a plan to redeem them and to rescue them. Uh, at this moment in history, the, the temple's been rebuilt. God is still honouring his covenant. And the Hebrews are still doing the same silly things over and over and over again. Uh, at our church, actually, we've just finished making our way through the book of Nehemiah, which in, in terms of history, just is a, is a couple of years after this. It's not, it's not too far different in time. And, and the shocking thing about the book of Nehemiah is what we learn is the things that God is talking to the Hebrews about through Malachi, it's still happening. Nothing, nothing has changed course we're just like them aren't we isn't that the the realization that we're meant to come through come to through looking at this period of time that god has been patient with us uh, and despite his patience despite his long suffering there's still ways in all of our lives where we prefer to do things our ways and, and and not his uh, we keep making the same mistakes again and again and again and so this is going to be a call to us to not take his grace for granted the the, the wrong conclusion for us to be reaching would be to become comfortable with sin 
knowing that we're going to be forgiven, rather went to press into him and be, and be transformed. So, what have you had so far in the book of Malachi? What you've had is God bringing a number of very specific complaints to Israel about how they're conducting themselves. Um, for example, in, in, in the passage just previous to this one, he's been taking them to task about how they're approaching marriage, right? He's been saying to them, you're getting marriage wrong in a number of ways. Uh, you've been entering into the wrong marriages and you've become accepting of divorce. Um, the version, your version of what marriage is for and how important it is, is different to God's good design and as my people, you should be living differently. That's what's just happened in the book of Malachi. There's been a number of things before that. Uh, and it turns out that, that what all of them seem to have in common is the, the specific sins that Israel, this is meant to be God's people, you understand, that, that Israel are living in, the specific sins that they're tolerating are all things which, when compared to the unbelieving nations around them, they're all normal. This is the way the people who don't know God live. They're the dumb thing. This is, this is what happens when you take your eyes off God. You start to fit in. You start to live like your neighbours. And when we live in a fallen world, that's, that's not a good thing. Uh, and so God is saying, no, my people are different. We're set apart. You're my own special possession. You are to be with me and you are to be like me. And so now in our passage for today, we step back a little bit. <laughs> this is where it gets fun. From the very specific practical concerns about their conduct. He's been speaking to them about marriage and about tithing and about priests and temples. And suddenly we, we, we look at the larger picture of life. God has a message for them. And I, as we'll see, it's for us as well. That is meant to give us fuel toward living differently, to living the kinds of lives that we're supposed to be living in Jesus. It's going to take a little bit of work because we're dealing with predictive prophecy for us to understand, but I hope you'll see that the work we put in will be worth it by the end of our time together this morning. You've had this read. I'm going to read it again because I like to read the passage um, going from Malachi 2.17. It's a heavy one. This, this is a passage. This is a slap to the face. We're meant to feel those feelings. The Lord speaking to his own people through the prophet Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Can you imagine God saying to you, it irritates me when you pray. Like, how, how, how upset does the Lord need to be? You say, how have we wearied him? He says, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress their hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. It's heavy, isn't it? There's a, in in my understanding, two confusing parts when it comes to interpreting this passage that we have to deal with, we have to understand before we can get the most out of what the Lord is saying in this warning. The two parts of this, it's the question of the who and the what. Who is the predicted messenger that Malachi is promising is coming? And what is the predicted future that Malachi is promising is coming? Who is the messenger? When is he talking about? Let's talk about this messenger. Verse 1 here is a bit confusing of chapter 3. And what makes it a little confusing is that it appears that there are two people being described by the word messenger. It's easy to miss on the first reading. In the first half of verse 1, there is a messenger promised who will prepare the way before God. You see that? He's going to come and he's going to prepare the way before me. That person is not the Lord. He is the one who's going to come before him and to prepare the way. But in the second half of that same verse, Malachi uses a Hebrew poetic form called parallelism. It's a thing that comes up a lot in the Old Testament where they say the same thing twice, but they just change all the nouns. They they, they change the wording, but we're meant to read this and understand that the two sentences is the the same thing described from two different angles. It's just a way of reinforcing what you're saying. And so can you see in the, the back end of that verse, there's two parts. There's, two, there's the same thought expressed in two ways. The first way is he talks about the Lord you seek will come into his temple. And then he says the messenger of the covenant is coming. You see that? The Lord you seek is going to come. The messenger of the covenant is coming. That's called parallelism. So they're the same person. So the messenger in the back half of verse 1 is also called the Lord. So, there's two messengers. That's, 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 that's the short version of what we're saying here. There is a messenger who is not the Lord, and there is a messenger who is the Lord, both described in verse 1. Now, this passage has, for the longest time, been predicted, um, been, been read as predicting both the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the one who came before the Messiah to prepare the way. We know him as John the Baptist. Malachi will predict his coming again in the last two verses of Malachi in chapter 4 verse 5. Malachi, um, God says through Malachi, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and, uh, and awesome day of the Lord. I'll keep saying terrible by accident, but that's the old King James translation of the same verse. The great and awesome day of the Lord. The angel speaking to Zechariah in the temple before the first Christmas. Um, telling him that he is going to have a son and he is to name him John, and that he'll be great in the Lord, describes him like this in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Um, Luke, uh, the angel says of the coming John, he will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the, uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And if there was any doubt left in us whatsoever, Jesus himself states right, um, right just very clearly, um, speaking of John and Matthew 11, he says to us, there's two blank pages in there, that's great. Where is it? Can someone get me Matthew 11.10? Something gone wrong with my notes here. Thank you very much. Um, Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Okay, so we have this, this confirmation that John the Baptist is the one who is going to come and who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. All that is to say, Malachi is predicting here two coming messengers, the first of whom is John the Baptist, and the second of whom is the coming Messiah, who the rest of the passage is about. And so when we turn to this coming one, this is where we start to get into our second bit of confusion Because the next question that we get to is, when? Which which coming are we talking about? Which future is being predicted here? More specifically, is what Malachi is saying going to be fulfilled in the first century with the arrival of Jesus? Or does it have more of an end times fulfillment in mind? Do you feel that? There's definitely some amount of first century in here, isn't there? The Lord will come suddenly to his temple. That's a really special prophecy. At the beginning of the exile, so this is before Malachi, the Babylonians had completely destroyed the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, the one which had been built by King Solomon. That temple's gone. It doesn't exist. And then in a time not far removed from the life of Malachi a second temple has been built on that same hill in the city of Jerusalem. Now, when when the tent of meeting in the time of Moses had been consecrated, and when the first temple had been consecrated in the time of Solomon, on both of those occasions, the Lord had visibly and dramatically and miraculously manifested his presence showing the people that he had taken up residence in the temple and was dwelling in the midst of his people. That had happened for the tabernacle. It had happened for the second temple. But it had not happened for the second temple. Before the destruction of the first temple, as a sign of judgment, Ezekiel, the prophet, had had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. That was in Ezekiel 10. Then later on, he had a second vision of the glory coming back. But when the second temple had been built, nothing like that had happened. This is one of the excuses that the people are making for their sin. We read about that in chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi. Where is the God of justice? Where is he? The temple, it seems like it's empty. Do you see what they're saying? So we can do what we want. But here through Malachi, it's promised... No, you don't understand. It's just a not yet. The Lord will come suddenly to his temple. It's coming. 
doesn't, doesn't the knowledge of that weight of expectation that goes back, goes back generations help us to feel the significance of what happens at the temple when baby Jesus is brought there to be presented? We read about that in Luke chapter 2. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into, in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The Lord came suddenly to his temple. Do you understand? That's what Simeon is seeing. It happened. This was not the last time that the Lord would come suddenly to his temple. But the day of his arrival is described in interesting language in Malachi. Who can endure it? Who can endure the day of his covering? Who can stand when he appears? Jesus was first presented in the temple as a baby, but later Jesus would come there again and he would make a whip and he would flog the money changers and the merchants who were using it as an opportunity to profiteer off the needy. He would come in a purifying rage an event which almost certainly leads directly to the cross as much as anything else. And so we could see that this prophecy from Malachi is all about the first century. Except it doesn't seem so neat, does it? This, this language of enduring his coming, it, it has echoes of another prophecy from Joel 2 where a, another great and terrible, great and awesome day of the Lord is predicted and a similar question is asked. Joel 2.11 The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The similar language here being used to that other prophecy from, from Malachi about Elijah as well. And yet Joel is definitely not talking about the first century alone. Likewise, some of the details of the, the cleansing that the Lord is going to bring really do not sound at all like the first century, do they? Jesus said he didn't come into the world to judge the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. He said that of himself in his first arrival. But the messenger predicted in Malachi is coming to draw near for judgment. That's one of his purposes in coming. And so what we have happening here is it appears that this is a predictive prophecy, a prophecy, a future time from the perspective of Malachi and the people he's speaking to. And it's doing the thing that a lot of predictive prophecy does in the Bible which is to have a series of escalating fulfillments. The one prophecy is prophesying two things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, are you familiar with how prophecy does that? Sort of 
A lot of end times prophecy has smaller fulfillments in history. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. The Apostle John told us before the Antichrist comes, little Antichrists will come. It's, it's stuff like that. It's kind of like the, the warning shocks that come before the big earthquake. It is quite reasonable for us to read this passage of Malachi as predicting both the arrival of Jesus as well as his future end times arrival. You see, what that does is it makes this passage relevant both to them and to us. This is why that matters. I know that's been heady, but let's bring all those threads together because this this hits. The Israelites have been presuming upon grace. We're his people. We can live how we want. He's going to be patient with us. They have been taking grace for granted. They have been walking in unrepentant sins of various kinds. They have gone as far as to call evil good. They are justifying as God's chosen people living the same lives that the rest of the lost world is living. They are citing God's absence as an excuse. And all the while they're doing this, they are claiming security because they have a position of privilege as his people. Those two things aren't meant to go together, I hope you know. But this is what they're doing. This is how they are living. And so God speaks through his prophet Malachi to warn them. This is not it. You are wearying me, says the Lord. Do not doubt that I am coming, but the day of my arrival might not be exactly what you expected. When I arrive, who can endure it? What they seem to be expecting is that he is going to land and then he's going to applaud them. My people, I'm here. Party time. He's going to fulfill all of their wants and all of their desires. And God is saying, no, I am coming. It is for a good and redemptive purpose. But for some of you, that is going to be a hard day. I am coming in my purifying might. And I'm going to do two things. I am going to make my people clean. And I am going to judge my enemies. And his first coming, Jesus came meek and mild, riding on a donkey. There will be no donkey the second time around. To, to, I mean, to get this purifying might into our hearts, he gives us two illustrations. He says he's going to purify them like a refiner's fire. Maybe we're familiar with that language because it comes up in the Bible. It's been in some songs that we sing in church. But have you ever thought about what that means? How do you refine, let's, let's go with silver, he says later on in the passage. Silver is an ore that comes out of the ground. The silver metal is wrapped up in other stuff that's not silver. How do you get the silver out of the rock? The answer is you heat it up till it's basically lava. To separate the gold and the dross, the silver and the ore. You burn it, you test it with fire. And in the purifying heat of the refiner's fire, what is valuable is separated from what is rubbish. 
God says, I'm going to come like a refiner's fire and I'm going to purify my people. I'm going to heat them up. And what is good, what is mine, what looks like me, what should be there, will be separated in them from what needs to go away because it belongs to their former life. It's pretty full on, isn't it? If that wasn't enough, he gives us a second image. He said, I'm coming like fuller's soap. We don't really know what that is, do we? The, the, the fullers were people you would take your clothes to for an extra deep clean. I mean, we're living in a day here before the invention of Fisher and Pipel and washing machines, right? How do, you clean, how do you give a deep clean to your clothes? Fullers would apply a very intense soap made from lye. It's a very strong, is it an acid or a base? I don't know, it's one of them. It's not good for your skin. If you touch it, it hurts. They would soak your clothes in this chemical and then they would chuck them on the rocks next to a a river and then they would beat the snot out of your clothes with a stick. They'd beat the dirt out (laughs) and then they'd rinse out the soap. And here, our coming saviour is revealed as the fuller's soap, as the lie. As the, as the stain-removing, harsh-to-touch, intense cleansing agent before you get beaten with sticks of love. It's nice, isn't it? It's just, it's just the most encouraging passage ever. Do you understand what we, what we are meant to hear in these two things, as intense as that imagery is, that both of these things is what he is going to do to the ones he is saving This is how he's going to treat his people. Specifically, in this image, this is coming for the priests first. The spiritual leaders of the people, they've been a bit off. They've been leading in the wrong direction. They haven't been standing on the word. They've been adding to it or taking from it. The spiritual leaders of the people are going to receive this kind of purification at the hands of God. And as a result of that, After that process is done, they will then begin to offer acceptable sacrifices in the place of their previous hypocrisy. I think we can all safely assume that that process is then coming for the rest of us. Okay, once he's done with that, (laughs) then the coming one is going to turn to his enemies, to those who are outside of his grace in verse 5. He says, then, so this is after the refiner's fire, after the fuller's soap, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widows and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. That's how he's going to treat his enemies. What is God saying? What this message is doing, it is reminding us of an important truth, one which we forget at our own peril. We will all give an account to God for how we live. Do you know that? When we look back at the, at the people then, what should be obvious to us 
is that they were being very short-sighted. This is why it is so frustrating to read about post-exile Israel. They should know better. How have they not already learnt that God is gracious, that his will is good, and that sin will kill you? But they haven't. They were being short-sighted. They were living for the present. They were fitting in. And they were pretending the future doesn't exist. I'm getting away with it, they were thinking. Where is he? It's good. As with them, so with us. You and I, we should live as those who will give an account. I've got a passage here. This is one is not in the, uh, in the PowerPoint. Um, it's not your fault if you can't find it. And this, this imagery is given to us in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Speaking of our future coming of the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, that's the new heavens and the new earth. We're really familiar with that, hopefully. It's a really beautiful picture of our forever home. The passage immediately before that is the one I'm about to read. Before we get to the new heavens and the new earth, This day has to happen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 onwards. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. This is the the old heavens and the old earth ending in the presence of our mighty God. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, these ones over here, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's this book. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Then we get a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, a day is coming when the books will be opened. Inside the first set of books is written a record of everything that you have ever done, public or secret. A day is coming for each of us where our secret sins will be publicly revealed in the presence of God on his throne. And it says we will be judged according to what is written in those books. Don't misunderstand that. This is not contradicting our gospel of grace. This is grace properly understood. We are not saved by works, but by grace and through faith. The ultimate verdict on that day will be decided not by the content of those books, But if your name is in the other book, if you want your name in that book, the book of life, what you need to do is to place your faith in Jesus 
the Savior. That's the most important book. That's the book that decides your destination. But the existence of the book of life does not make irrelevant the content of those other books, do you understand? The way in which we live matters. All of us, believer and unbeliever alike, will stand before our Creator and on that day will give an account. There will be no secrets on that day. There will be no one asking, where is the God of justice? He's sitting in front of you. And for those of us whose name is in the book of life, that day will be like a refiner's fire, burning away the last of the dross and preparing us for our forever home with him. Nothing in you which is dirty will remain. It will be dealt with and gone. Like Fuller's soap. (laughs) That moment will be like his beating out the last unclean remnants of your fallen nature. No longer will we have two natures, but one. We won't be simultaneously sinners and righteous, but we will shine like the stars in the heaven. For those whose name is not in the book of life, that is a day of fearful judgment and should be their greatest fear. Brothers and sisters, he is coming. The day is approaching. Malachi is a warning. You have not been unwarned. And the message on a day like today is, it is time to get ready for that day now. Today is a good day to turn from your sin and to find mercy. To turn from slavery and find freedom to turn from wickedness and be healed. There are two kinds of people here today in this room. Most of us here are Christians. Our name is in the book of life. But like you, on that day, there will be things about me that will be revealed that I would rather not be known. One of the dangers which exists for us who understand the gospel is that grace might lead us to become complacent with sin. Grace can be used, not not correctly, but effectively, as an excuse for us to tolerate the sin in our lives. I know there's some part of my life which is not glorifying to God. Your church exists to make disciples, there's some part of my life which doesn't look like a disciple should look. But because God is gracious, I'll get around to dealing with that later. You know, that, that, that pattern of thought. It's too hard. God's patient. He'll understand. We can speak to ourselves like this. The the tragedy of that is that our Saviour has come to deliver mercy and to rescue us. If we would bring those parts of our lives to him here and now, we know exactly what will happen. 
You're not going to bring your sin to God and have him say, well, that's really disappointing. I'm done with you now. That's, that's the devil's lie. You are going to come before him and say, look, this is wrong and I've come to hate it as much as you hate it. I want it gone. And in his presence, you will find mercy and acceptance and welcome and healing. The God of heaven has stooped, more than stooped. He has come in the Son, in flesh, born like you are under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He is grace for us. How on earth could we become content to stay in the muck and the mire when he has come to wash and refine us and we have certainty of success? Brothers and sisters, today is a good day to deal with your sin. Maybe as I've been speaking with you, you you already know that there is something in your life which is not in the Lord's hands the way it should be. And it needs to be handed over and made clean. Today is a good day to make that decision. Look, don't, don't wait After the service today, go and grab somebody in this church who you trust and talk to them. Confess your sins to one another, we've been told to do. This is why. Find somebody, a friend, a family member, a community group leader, one of the elders, someone you trust, someone you know can minister the gospel of grace and go and tell them what you have been hiding. Deal with it today. Sin only has power over you in the dark. So bring it into the light. Get ready for that day. The other kind of person in this room today is the person who is not yet a Christian. You need to know that God says all of these things not because he's a big angry jerk, but because he wants you and his family. You need to know that there is salvation in no one else and so rejecting him is dangerous. Being afraid of judgment isn't really enough to make someone spiritually healthy. But it does add some urgency to your wrestles. Without grace, without your name in that book, You're in forever danger. It's a simple reality that you need to understand. But you also need to understand that the Saviour has come to give you grace and it can be yours. Not because of the righteous things you've done, but by his mercy. We find reconciliation with the God who made us in the cross of Jesus alone. Jesus who lived the perfect life which we should have lived and most definitely haven't. Jesus who died in our place and for our sins, suffering the penalty our sins deserve. And Jesus who has risen again from the dead, having defeated sin and death, can bring you to the Father today, can make you whole, can save your soul. Whichever camp you are in, have no doubt. 
He is coming. And on the day of his coming, who will be able to stand? Those of us whose name is in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, that's hard to hear for a lot of reasons. I don't, I don't think this part of your word was ever easy to hear. Uh, Lord, but we live in a time when uh, people have surrounded themselves with flatterers. Where speaking honestly about real things is it's not tolerated. We live in an age where truth has been denied as a thing that exists. Truth is found within. Whatever I'm doing, I can justify and I can find people to applaud me for it. So to have someone, especially you, speak to me in this way, it's confronting. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that this is a warning given in love. It's a warning, but it's not one given by someone who hates us a warning because you want us to have better. It's an invitation wrapped in a warning. Help us to see your motives, God. That you are building a people for yourself, for your very own. And that every one of those people called into your kingdom would once have been your enemies. We are a kingdom of rescued sinners. Father, would you work that rescue here today? Father, I pray for those of us who are believers, who have been toying with sin, thinking that we're getting away with it. Would you impress upon us the significance of what we do? danger of what we do. Lord, would you help us to come to ourselves, to believe you are who you say that you are, to come into the light and find your mercy. Would you restore, Father? Would you work in your purifying might in this church and make this a holy people? Fit Suitable, ready, living in the blessing of your will. Father, we pray for those who are visiting today who haven't made their mind up yet. Yeah, Lord, would you impress upon them the urgency of the questions that they're asking and help them to understand that if they choose to come, when they choose to come, that they will definitely find your welcome. Father, thank you for Jesus and the certainty of his grace without which that day would be terrifying for us all. We pray this in his precious name, the name of the coming one who has come, the name of the messenger of the covenant, the name of the one whose blood has now established that covenant, 
the name of the one who lived and died and rose again and who now lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.